Hello, my name is Stanley Bill. You're listening to Notes from Poland. This week, I continue my brief history of Poland with part six on the 18th century and the end of the Commonwealth. I'll discuss its decline into political disorder, the Enlightenment and reform, and the partitions that wiped the Commonwealth from the map. Notesfrompoland.com is the leading English language source of news, insight, and analysis on Poland. In this podcast, I look at the country from all angles, politics, history, culture, and society. You can get more news and the deeper stories about Poland at notesfrompoland.com. At the beginning of the 18th century, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was a shadow of its former self. By the century's end, it had disappeared from the map of Europe entirely, absorbed by the ascendant powers of Russia, Prussia and Austria in three partitions. Poland's geopolitical fate on the East European plains between Germany and Russia had reached the low point of almost a thousand years of fluctuating fortunes. Back in 966, the nascent state of the pagan Polanians had accepted Christianity in part to halt the expansion of the East German marches. Poland and Lithuania later united to resist and then vanquish the Teutonic Order, splitting its territory into two Prussian regions, both subservient to the Polish crown. The Lithuanians and Poles also expanded into the East Slavic lands of the former Kievan Rus, where their union was strengthened by the need to stand together against the rise of Moscow to challenge their dominance. In 1610, Polish-Lithuanian forces occupied the Kremlin as Russia grappled with its time of troubles. But from the mid-17th century and into the 18th, the wheels of history began to turn in the opposite direction, as both Russian and German powers increasingly threatened the Commonwealth. In the East, the newly formed Russian Empire created by Peter the Great in 1721, asserted rights over the remnants of the Commonwealth's border regions, irrespective of the independent aspirations of their Ukrainian inhabitants. The contest between Eastern and Western Slavs over this territory reached back as far as Bolesław the Brave, the first Polish king, who had briefly captured Kiev in the early 11th century. With the great East-West schism in the church that followed, this fault line would become a religious one, running through the Commonwealth itself, between Eastern Orthodoxy and Catholicism, playing a crucial role in the later turmoil in Ukraine and the beginning of Russia's westward expansion. In the North and West, the Commonwealth faced a new German rival in the upstart power of Prussia. Taking its name from the pagan people first conquered by the Teutonic Knights in the 13th century, the Duchy of Prussia was initially a fief of the Polish crown, alongside Royal Prussia, a neighbouring province directly attached to Poland, including the wealthy trading port of Gdańsk, or Danzig, and the city of Toruń. Both Prussias had majority German populations, but the Duchy also had significant Polish and Lithuanian minorities. In the 16th century, its major city of Königsberg, Królewiec in Polish, today's Russian Kaliningrad, 
was an important centre of Polish language book publishing, producing pivotal works to codify the Polish language, as well as the first Polish translations of the New Testament, fostered by the duchy's status as a Protestant state. Over the course of the 17th century, the Duchy of Prussia began to drift out of the Polish orbit. Its rulers formed a personal union with Brandenburg, another German principality centred on Berlin, eventually turning this union into an independent kingdom. Under King Frederick William I and his son Frederick II, the Great, the Kingdom of Prussia developed into a military powerhouse. As the French statesman Count Mirabeau quipped, Prussia was not a country with an army, but an army with a country. Frederick the Great expanded his realm by taking the region of Silesia, including Breslau, today's Wrocław in western Poland, from Habsburg, Austria in the 1740s. Yet the Prussian kingdom's main territories, centred on Königsberg and Berlin, were still divided by the Polish crown lands of Royal Prussia in between. Just as in 1939, when East Prussia would be separated from the rest of the German Reich by a Polish corridor, the 18th century saw an expansionistic German power looking to the same strip of Polish territory between its two constituent parts. In 1697, the Polish-Lithuanian nobles had elected a new king, the ruler of Saxony, Augustus II, the Strong, inaugurating a period of over half a century sometimes known as the Saxon Knight. In the first decade of the 18th century, more wars, mostly with Sweden, devastated parts of the country yet again. Foreign armies marched across the Commonwealth's lands unchecked, religious tensions grew, cultural achievements faded into the past, rivalries between the central authority of the king, the powerful magnates, and the rest of the schlachter reached the point of incapacitating the same. A weakened, Polish-Lithuanian state became a virtual protectorate of Russia, whose troops entered the country at will, shaping the Commonwealth's political processes to suit its own interests. An emblem of the Commonwealth's growing dysfunctionality was the so-called liberum veto, or free veto, according to which a single deputy could block legislation in the same by shouting nie pozwalam, I don't allow it. This practice evolved from 1652, the year traditionally marked as its first use, becoming one of the pillars of the nobles' golden freedom. The veto was founded on the principle of unanimity, presuming that no member of the schlachter could be subject to legal strictures against his will. Yet by the 1720s, many internal critics viewed it as an absurdity, a measure that, together with fierce divisions and other procedural barriers, led to deadlock in the same, allowing foreign powers to block legislation through bribery, which the Russians in particular regularly did. Under King Augustus III, who succeeded his father with the backing of the Russian army, no legislation at all was enacted between 1738 and 1761. Even when laws were passed, they often went unenforced in the absence of any strong executive apparatus. Despite these failings, the latter part of the Saxon period would see peace and economic development in the Commonwealth after many years of calamitous war. The Saxon kings left their mark on Warsaw with a series of lavish public works, including the Saxon Garden, still an oasis at the heart of the Polish capital today, 
which opened in 1727 as its first public park. The Commonwealth's reputation for anarchy spread across Europe, and Poland became a byword for political chaos and a self-defeating fixation on freedom, narrowly defined. An interesting example of this international image came in a satire entitled Diet of Poland, the Diet referring here to the Parliament, published in 1705 by Daniel Defoe, the English author best known for the novel Robinson Crusoe. Defoe's satirical work is actually about England and its Parliament, with Poland and various characters, including King Augustus the Strong, used in allegorical fashion to comment on current events in the author's own country. Nevertheless, the image of the Commonwealth itself was presumably already recognisable to his readers. The work begins with a series of stereotypes about harsh climate, barbaric people and outlandishly unpronounceable names. The narrator goes on to talk about eternal discords and preposterous laws, absurd in their design, which threaten to finish off the wounded state. He says that for fear of losing their liberties, the Polish nobles are actually destroying their hard-won privileges through what he calls the tyranny of the same. Defoe's narrator attacks the weakening of the crown and the embroiling of church and state, saying that the nobles are pulling down the just defences of their own kingdom. Somewhat later, and much more ominously, Frederick the Great of Prussia wrote contemptuously of Poland in his History of My Own Times, published in 1746. Much of his polemic echoed the Commonwealth's own reformist voices, increasingly critical of the state's growing incapacity. Frederick wrote, Poland is in a perpetual state of anarchy. The great families are all divided by interest. Their individual advantage is preferred to the public welfare. And they are only unanimous in the severity with which they oppress their subjects. The Prussian king draws particular attention to the low level of economic development, calling the Commonwealth a country without commerce or manufacturing, rich in raw materials, but poor in cities and relatively underpopulated. He mocks the Polish-Lithuanian state for allowing the profits of its natural resources to be monopolised by its autonomous, mostly German commercial centre of Danzig and also by the Prussian cities of Königsberg and Breslau. The Prussian king's excoriation of the Commonwealth was far from disinterested. Indeed, it represented a form of political propaganda. With his eye already on future expansion, Frederick depicted his Polish-Lithuanian neighbour as a chaotic and degenerate country ripe for the taking. More broadly, his rhetoric forms part of what American historian Larry Wolf has more recently described as the invention of Eastern Europe. According to Wolf, the 18th century saw the crystallisation of a series of enduring Western stereotypes about a backward and barbaric East, Europe's very own other, bound to it by religion and other historical ties, but somehow lesser, inchoate, not quite entirely European. In the Age of Enlightenment, with its emphasis on reason and what Immanuel Kant, a native of Königsberg, called the emergence from self-imposed immaturity, Poland-Lithuania was cast as a place of irrationality ignorance 
and disorder. The famous French encyclopedia, which became a kind of handbook of Enlightenment views, included an entry on Poland asserting that the country had no school of painting, no theatre, architecture only in its infancy, history treated entirely without taste, uncultivated mathematics, no knowledge of philosophy, no monuments, and no great city. At the same time, many writers emphasised the supposed religious intolerance of the Commonwealth, depicting it as a land of Catholic fanaticism and persecution of religious minorities. Perhaps the best-known figure of the French Enlightenment, Voltaire, was particularly vociferous on this question, which formed part of his broader critique of the Catholic Church and its political influence. Tellingly, his views on Poland developed in dialogue with Catherine II, the Great, Empress of Russia, who had come to the throne in 1762. Voltaire saw Catherine as she seems to have seen herself, a civilizing beacon of Enlightenment values in the darkness of Eastern Europe. The chaos and anarchy of the region could be unscrambled, as Voltaire put it, by the strong hand of the kind of enlightened absolutism that Catherine ostensibly represented. Order, reason, and progress. For Catherine, the Commonwealth's management of its religious diversity, above all, provided a pretext for Russian interference. It was certainly true that Poland-Lithuania had become less tolerant since the end of the 16th century, though it was still probably no worse than many other European countries of the time. In 1724, riots between Catholics and Protestants in Toruń resulted in the execution of several Lutheran officials, sparking international outrage, especially in Protestant Prussia and England. In subsequent years, legislation was passed to prevent non-Catholics from holding various public offices and even from participating in the same. In 1767, Catherine, whose own state privileged Eastern Orthodoxy, made a stand in defence of Poland-Lithuania's religious dissidents. Through a combination of bribes and the threat of military intervention, Catherine forced the same to pass legislation guaranteeing equal rights to non-Catholic members of the Schlachta. In response, Voltaire enthused of the Russian Empress, not only does she establish tolerance at home, but she has sought to cause it to be reborn among her neighbours. The year 1764 marked the beginning of a new phase, with the election of a new king, Stanisław August Poniatowski, a member of a powerful magnate faction associated with the influential Czartoryski family. Stanisław August has gone down in Polish history as a highly ambivalent figure. On the one hand, he was a former lover of Catherine the Great, who was elected at her discretion to serve Russia's interests. Russian troops were stationed near the election field when he was installed. On the other hand, he turned out to be a reformer, who led various attempts to repair the Commonwealth's fatal flaws and gave his name to the cultural revival of the Polish Enlightenment. Together with a reformist camp of nobles, Stanisław August endeavoured to push new legislation through the same that would reinforce the centralised state power of the king and abolish the liberum veto in order to facilitate future lawmaking. But Catherine was not prepared to accept these attempts to strengthen the Commonwealth against foreign interference. Backed by the presence of thousands of Russian troops, the Empress's ambassador, 
convened a same in 1767 and 68 that enshrined the liberum veto, religious tolerance, and other aspects of the golden freedom as cardinal laws subject to a Russian guarantee. In response to this further breach of the Commonwealth sovereignty, a group of Polish-Lithuanian nobles launched a revolt known as the Bar Confederation against the Russian occupying forces and King Stanisław August, who was by now trying to play a mediating role. The Confederation took particular exception to the guarantee of equal rights for religious minorities, instead defending a narrower vision of the Polish political community closely tied to Catholicism. The conflict subsequently turned into a four-year war against a despotic Russian power that nevertheless claimed to be defending traditional Polish liberties and religious tolerance. Again, Voltaire approved of Russian actions, though he was not blind to the irony. It is amusing, he wrote, and seemingly paradoxical, to support indulgence and tolerance with weapons in hand. But then Polish intolerance is so odious that it deserves a box on the ear. In short, the Commonwealth's ill-treatment of its minorities, in itself far from unusual in the Europe of the time, became a pretext for military interference. Amid the chaos, another brutal civil war broke out in Ukraine, following a similar pattern to the earlier Khmelnytsky uprising, with Cossacks and Ukrainian peasants slaughtering Polish nobles, Catholic priests, Uniots and Jews, against a background of continued social and religious tensions. Symbolic of the bloodshed was a massacre of the inhabitants of the besieged town of Uman in the summer of 1768. The town was overwhelmed when one of its defenders, a Cossack captain named Ivan Gonta, defected to the side of the rebels. Men, women and children were hacked to pieces on streets and squares, in churches, the synagogue and the town hall. The defector, Gonta, was later captured by Polish forces and reportedly executed by being flayed alive. In 1772, the Bar Confederation was finally suppressed, with the last of the resistance crushed at the symbolic location of the Jasna Gura Monastery of Częstochowa, once the site of the Commonwealth's resurgence against foreign invaders. What followed would be the beginning of its final dismemberment. As early as 1768, Frederick of Prussia had proposed a plan to partition the Commonwealth with Catherine. Now, using the pretext of its supposed threat to international stability, and with Russian troops already occupying the country, the two rulers went ahead with their scheme, inviting Maria Theresa of Austria to join them. At first, she declined, finding this seizure of territory to be indecent and also against her political interests. But eventually, the Habsburg ruler acquiesced, annexing for Austria the second-largest portion, after the Russians, and the largest population, including the city of Lvov. Frederick later jested that Maria Theresa had wept for the Commonwealth, but the more she wept, the more she took. Frederick himself seized the smallest swathe of territory, but the most economically valuable. Crucially, he took the Polish strip between his Brandenburg and East Prussian lands, thus uniting them geographically for the first time, though the major cities of Gdańsk and Toruń 
remained in the Polish kingdom for now. Altogether, the Commonwealth lost around 30% of its territory and 35% of its approximately 14 million inhabitants. The king and the same were forced to sign a treaty of partition, despite the continued protests of some of the nobles. The international reaction to this unprecedented event was mostly limited to mutterings of disapproval, especially in England and France, with no military or significant diplomatic action. A satirical cartoon in the Westminster magazine in London depicted Poland as a plum cake, being joyfully shared by sword-wielding European monarchs. The carving up of the Commonwealth had begun. While Enlightenment principles of tolerance and progress were being used as excuses for foreign military intervention, the Commonwealth was trying to reform itself, while also going through its own Enlightenment cultural revival. Closely associated with the king and with the progressive camp of reform, the Polish proponents of reason defined themselves against what they viewed as the backwardness of the traditional Sarmatian culture of the Schlachter with its growing intolerance and insularity. The Sarmatian nobleman became a figure of ridicule, associated with garish Eastern fashions, superstitious religiosity, ignorance and false pride, while the reformers looked to the West for models of progress. This elite conflict between imitative Western-oriented modernizers and traditionalist nativists would form a recurring axis for domestic political divisions in Poland, still partly relevant today. In 1773, the king and the same established the Commission of National Education, sometimes described as the first education ministry in Europe. The commission's schools were to replace the earlier network of Jesuit schools, introducing Polish as the language of instruction instead of Latin. The new national body aimed to broaden systematic education to include townsfolk and even peasants. The commission also took over the first public library in the Commonwealth, which had been established a few decades prior by the Zawuski brothers, both Roman Catholic bishops. The library became one of the largest in Europe. Its later fate would embody the cultural dimension of imperial violence against the Commonwealth. In 1794, Catherine the Great had the library's collections transported to St. Petersburg, where they formed the core of her own imperial public library. Many of the stolen works were damaged or destroyed in the process. Over a century later, in the 1920s and 30s, independent Poland managed to claw back some of the works, only to see them willfully destroyed by the Germans, together with the building that housed them, as they raised much of Warsaw to the ground in 1944. Literature in Polish in the Enlightenment period was dominated by satire, didactic poetry delivering the message of reform, and the beginnings of the novel. The best-known figure of 18th-century Polish letters is Ignacy Krasicki, one of the key contributors to The Monitor, progressive newspaper modelled on The Spectator in England. After his magnate family fell on hard times, Krasicki entered the priesthood, later rising to become the Prince Bishop of Warmia, a region today in the northeast of Poland. Krasicki represented a particular class of cosmopolitan ecclesiastical elite, opposed to religious fanaticism 
and almost anti-clerical in his views. An accomplished diplomat, he had close relationships both with the Polish king and then with Frederick the Great, after the Prussians took the Warmian region in the First Partition. Krasicki is especially well known for his fables, a genre suited to the satirical didacticism typical of Enlightenment literature. Krasicki's fables are elegantly constructed poetic miniatures, often allegorically concerned with the operations of power, both personal and political. One of these brief works, called The Lamb and the Wolves, almost seems to satirize the cynical justifications given by the petitioning powers, especially Frederick and Catherine, for their wolfish devouring of the Commonwealth. Whoever seeks to conquer will always find an excuse. Two wolves in the woods were stalking a lamb that had gotten loose. They were about to tear it apart when the lamb said, By what right? You are tasty, weak, and in the woods. They ate it up in one bite. Krasicki also wrote what some have defined as the first novel in the Polish language, Mikołaja Doświadczyńskiego Przypadki, recently translated as The Adventures of Mr. Nicholas Wisdom. The book is a social satire and a classically utopian tale, as a dissolute young nobleman finds himself shipwrecked on the fictional island of Nipu, where he discovers the strange ways of an ideal society that lives there. He eventually returns home to Poland, where he tries to share the lessons he has learned with his ignorant Sarmatian neighbours, who react with hostility to the new ideas. While Krasicki and others were endeavouring to disseminate Enlightenment thinking among the Schlachta and townsfolk, the Commonwealth's autonomous Jewish communities were experiencing a spiritual revival, especially in the East. On the fertile ground of earlier mystical traditions and a string of self-proclaimed Messiah figures, a new movement had arisen in Western Ukraine, Hasidism. Based on the teachings of a charismatic figure known as the Baal Shem Tov, this new form of Judaism, increasingly popular with the impoverished masses, focused on joyful connection with God through the physical world and acts of ecstatic worship. The key early works professing the Hasidic doctrine were written in the 1780s, after the Baal Shem Tov's death. One seminal text on the central role of the tzaddik, or spiritual leader, was written by Elimelech of Lizhensk, Lezhaisk in today's eastern Poland, whose grave is still visited every year by thousands of Hasidim from around the world. By the late 18th century, in the relatively favourable political and economic conditions of the Commonwealth, the Jewish population had grown to approximately 750,000, around 5% of the total population. This huge community would give birth to some of the most influential and enduring traditions of Jewish culture across the world. Though Jews were integrated into the economy as key intermediaries, Frederick the Great even claimed the whole of Poland's trade lay in their hands, much of Jewish life remained very separate, tolerated but not welcomed by the Christian majority. As civil strife repeatedly shook Ukraine, the Commonwealth ceased to be a safe haven for Jews, who sometimes paid a bloody price for their religious otherness and economic relationship with the hated Polish lords. Later, from 1791, 
the same eastern regions of the Commonwealth annexed by the Russian Empire would form the so-called Pale of Settlement, outside which Jews were not permitted to live. Catherine also introduced a regulation forcing them to pay double the taxes of Christians. Conditions in Russia would be no more tolerant towards Jews than in the Commonwealth. Meanwhile, in Warsaw, the momentum for political renewal was building. In 1788, the same convened for a session that would end up lasting four years. Often known as the Great Same, the representatives discussed and debated the changes that would be required to save the Commonwealth from annihilation, in a last effort of the state's ruling institutions to repair themselves. With the partial support of the king, and with Russia occupied by a major war with Turkey, the four-year same was a platform for the ideas of multiple reforming voices. The culminating achievement of the same was the passing of the Constitution of the 3rd of May in 1791, often described as Europe's first modern constitution, and the second in the world after the United States Constitution of two years earlier. Partly written by the king himself, the new constitution was far from radical, but it contained some progressive elements, inspired by both the US Constitution and the unfolding events of the French Revolution, thus provoking the opposition of some conservatives in the same. The constitution partially enfranchised the townspeople, giving them some of the rights enjoyed by the schlachter, while the peasantry was placed for the first time under the protection of national law. However, the document also strengthened the central power of the monarchy, doing away with the royal elections that had so often facilitated foreign interference, abolished the liberum veto, and enshrined Catholicism as a virtual state religion, though with some provisions for toleration of religious minorities. A separation of powers was established between the executive authority of the king, the legislative power of the same, and the judiciary. Stanislav August a well-known Anglophile, may have been aiming at a British form of constitutional monarchy. Indeed, Edmund Burke, the Irish statesman and member of the British Parliament, known for his critique of the French Revolution, praised the new Polish constitution in the highest terms. So far as it has gone, he wrote, it probably is the most pure public good which ever has been conferred on mankind. We have seen anarchy and servitude at once removed, a throne strengthened for the protection of the people, without trenching on their liberties. Yet the Russian response was predictably hostile. Fresh from a victory over Turkey that confirmed the earlier annexation of Crimea, over 90,000 Russian troops invaded the Commonwealth in 1792. Once again, the pretext was the protection of Polish liberties. Specifically, the Russians were responding to a protest against the new constitution's supposed limitation of these liberties from a conservative faction of magnates who formed a confederation in a small town in Ukraine. To this day, the very name of the town, Targovica, remains a byword for treason, sometimes still used by contemporary politicians in Poland to smear rivals accused of betraying the national interest in league with foreign powers. After a short and indecisive war, the Polish king capitulated. In early 1793, Prussian troops also entered the Commonwealth, leading to the Second Partition. 
The Prussians took more valuable possessions in the West, including the prized cities of Poznań and Gdańsk. Russia seized another vast stretch of eastern territory, including Minsk. Overall, the Commonwealth lost more than half of its remaining land and another five million inhabitants. All that was left was a long strip of rump territory running from north to south, including the cities of Vilnius, Warsaw, Lublin and Kraków. Members of the reformist camp and of the army refused to accept the capitulation, resolving to fight to preserve the Commonwealth's independence and indeed its very existence. They chose Tadeusz Kościuszko, a general in the Polish army and former fighter in the American Revolutionary War, to lead a general uprising against the Russian and Prussian partitioning powers. In March 1794, at the beginning of the insurrection, Kościuszko swore an oath on the market square in Kraków to use his dictatorial powers both to restore the nation's lost sovereignty and to engender universal freedom. In this ambitious formulation, he established a key paradigm for later Polish freedom fighters. The struggle for national independence was intimately tied to a wider struggle for liberty across Europe and the world. The national and the universal were bound together, partly inspired by the example of revolutionary France, but also shaped by the Commonwealth's own political traditions. Crucially, Kościuszko sought to include the common people in the struggle, famously leading an army of peasant soldiers armed with scythes to an early victory against Russian forces near Kraków at the Battle of Ratswawice. A month later, in the proclamation of Powaniec, he granted peasants a form of personal freedom, certain legal rights and a restriction of the obligations of serfdom with the promise of future rights in a free Poland. Kościuszko had undoubtedly absorbed some of the radical democratic and revolutionary spirit of his era, and yet his motivations were also partly pragmatic, as it had become clear that the fight for independence could not succeed without the support of the wider masses. Whatever his reasons, Kościuszko effectively made the first steps towards a new idea of the nation. Away from early modern notions of the political nation as a particular class group, the Schlachter, towards an anticipation of the mass democratic politics that would later be intertwined with the development of modern nationalism. But despite this attempt to widen the struggle, the Polish-Lithuanian forces were overwhelmed by the combined might of the Russian and Prussian armies. In October 1794, Kościuszko himself was injured and captured by victorious Russian forces at the Battle of Maciejowice. In November, Russian troops broke through Polish resistance to enter the Praga district of Warsaw on the eastern bank of the Vistula River, where they massacred thousands of civilians in a frenzy of violence, possibly in retribution for earlier rebel killings of Russian troops garrisoned in Warsaw at the beginning of the uprising. In 1795, the three powers of Russia, Prussia and Austria came together once again to partition the remaining portion of the Commonwealth. In the final settlement, Russia laid claim to over 60% of the Commonwealth's former territory, while Prussia and Austria took just under 20% each. In a signed treaty, the triumphant partitioning powers agreed that the very name of the Kingdom of Poland would never be used again.
the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, a unique political creation that had striven for harmony but descended into turmoil, was no more. Yet the Polish nation continued to exist, in a new set of circumstances that would lead to a radical transformation of its very nature and composition. The last period of the Commonwealth's existence had already seen changes. The Commission of National Education aimed to instill patriotic values in various social groups, not just in the Schlachter. The Constitution of the 3rd of May symbolically expanded the idea of the nation to include the townspeople. Kosciuszko then embraced the most numerous of the Commonwealth social classes, the peasantry. The pressure of impending doom had pushed the would-be reformers of the Commonwealth towards the first rudiments of a modern conception of the nation. This meant the consolidation of processes that had already begun to shift understandings of national identity from a mostly political category associated with the rights of the multi-ethnic Schlachter class to a cultural, linguistic, religious or even ethnic category. Most importantly, with its state destroyed, the new Polish nation would have to become the quintessential imagined community, to use Benedict Anderson's term, in order to survive at all. Indeed, Poland would prove that political existence was not indispensable to the existence of the nation. In 1772, the Swiss philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau, a supporter of the Commonwealth, had anticipated the importance of fostering a kind of inner republic of the heart. He argued, it is necessary to establish the republic so firmly in the hearts of the Poles that she will maintain her existence there in spite of all the efforts of her oppressors. There, it seems to me, is the only sanctuary where force can neither reach nor destroy her. You may not prevent them from swallowing you up. See to it, at least, that they will not be able to digest you. A related sentiment is expressed in the words of today's Polish national anthem, which dates back to 1797. Its opening lines, Jeszcze Polska nie zginęła, kiedy my żyjemy, Poland has not yet perished, as long as we still live, suggest that the nation resides not within borders on a map, or even in political institutions, but in the flesh and blood of its members and above all, in their hearts, minds, language, and imagination. In this spiritual form, a reconstituted nation could survive the death of its state and fight to bring it back to life. I'll talk about the continued struggle for independence and these new romantic ideas of nation in the next episode of A Brief History of Poland. I'm Stanley Bill. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.